0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It is great to be with you. If you are new with us here at Old North, a special welcome to you. I know that the fall season is sometimes a time when people look to engage afresh into new rhythms of life and in a church home. And I know that we have some of our college students who are back at YSU around. It's great to see you. A number of students from CCO, a special welcome to you as well. And we hope that you find a church home and get involved in the life of the church here uh, while you're in that great time of life in college. I want to ask you uh, to grab a Bible and open with me to the book of Galatians. Last week we started our fall series in the book of Galatians, which we are calling True Gospel, True Freedom. And as you turn there, let's take a moment and pause in prayer. Father, we pray that you would continue to do your work of changing our hearts and our minds and our desires through your word. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Words change meaning over time in ways that might surprise you. I wonder if you can think of some words that used to mean one thing and now mean something completely different. (laughs) Here are a handful of examples of words that you might not have realized didn't always mean the same thing that they mean today. How about the word nice? you know the word nice used to mean silly or foolish or simple? Far from the compliment that it is today. Or on the flip side of that same coin, the word silly. The word silly used to, in its earliest uses, mean something that was worthy or blessed. From there, it came to refer to something that was weak and vulnerable, and now, more recently, it refers to something that is just foolish. Awful. The word awful. Awful things used to be worthy of awe. And for a variety of reasons, that's how we got the expression, the awful majesty of God. How about the word naughty? Long ago, if you were naughty, you had naught or nothing. <laughs> then it came to mean evil or immoral. And now, if you're naughty, it means that you're just badly behaved. <laughs> or how about the word guy? The word guy comes from the name Guy Fox. Guy Fox was part of a failed attempt to blow up Parliament in the year 1605. Folks used to burn his eff- effigy. And they would call somebody who was a frightful figure a Guy. Still today, to this, uh, to this day, they celebrate Guy Fawkes Night every year in England by blowing up fireworks across the countryside as a simulation of the foiled plot to blow up Parliament. Now, of course, in the United States, the term Guy simply means men in general. He's a good guy. He's a bad guy. He's a guy. Guy's guy. Um, how about the word gospel? That word seems to have a variety of meanings or implications today. And Paul writes the letter to the Galatians because there were some who were intentionally distorting the gospel. Not just what the word meant, but also what the belief behind it entailed. And so he writes this letter to Christians so that they would understand this particular word and the meaning behind it. And all of the wonderful benefits of it because of all the words that change, this is one that is so important that it doesn't change. And so he gives this letter to us because he wants us to know the true gospel. Because when you know the true gospel, you can have true freedom. And so grab a Bible with me and look at Galatians chapter 1. And today we're going to start at verse 11. Verse 11, Paul writes and he says this, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism and how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This section is unique for New Testament epistles, because Paul gives a short biographical sketch of his own experiences. His own experiences with God, and his own experiences with receiving the gospel. And he does so for two reasons, primarily. Number one, he wants to establish to us that the gospel that he preaches is not merely a matter of perspective or merely a matter of opinion that this gospel came from God. And number two, he wants to demonstrate the power of God to save people from even from the most fierce opposition to him. This gospel was from God. He spends a fair amount of time giving us detail about his actions to help us to understand that the gospel didn't come from somebody else. It didn't come from others that he met or from counsel that he received. It came from God. And the reason why that's so important is because there are many false gospels around. Remember, a false gospel is when you add to or when you take away from The fact that God saves people by His grace through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. God saves people by His grace through faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. That is the gospel that Paul is preaching. The false gospel that he was specifically teaching against was from the Judaizers who claimed that you needed to believe in Jesus and identify yourself as a Jew by being circumcised, thus adding to the gospel, and then you could be part of the family of God. And of course, as we talked about last week, this reminded us of the many false gospels that we hear today. There's a lot of false gospels out there that either add or take away, and it becomes very clear when you start to consider them, frankly, that God has chosen to enact his plan of salvation in a very specific way. And therefore, it doesn't just matter that we believe. It matters what we believe. Our culture today will very often say to you, oh, it just matters that you believe. You're all good with God just as long as you believe. Just believe in the general things of God and and, and you're okay. But what we see in Galatians is there's a big difference with simply that you believe compared to what you believe. And the difference is the difference between life with God and eternity and life without Him. So the stakes are high. (laughs) And it makes sense that if Paul is going to make the claim that he's making that what I am telling you is the one and only true gospel, that there would be significant pushback to that because there will always be people to say, well, that's just Paul's opinion on the matter. Or, that's just the gospel from another man. <laughs> or what we often hear is, you know, nobody has the corner on the market of truth. Not even you, Paul. Not even you. And so Paul makes it very clear in verse 11 and verse 12 where this gospel came from. Look at it with me. He says, I would have you to know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're familiar with the story. The revelation that he's talking about is referred to in Acts chapter 9. It was the revelation of his own conversion. Paul, who was previously known by the name Saul, stood in opposition to God and to the church of God. He was persecuting Christians. Jesus sought him out. The resurrected Jesus himself sought him out. Appeared to him on the road of Damascus in great light. And Paul was brought to his knees... Conviction. There was a call to repent and to change. And he obeyed. And in faith, he followed the way of Jesus from that day forward. Acts chapter 22, Paul tells this exact same story again to a tribunal as he's being arrested for committing himself and for preaching this gospel of grace through faith. Acts 26, he's before King Agrippa, and he tells the same story again. And the point is clear. His message of the gospel is directly from God himself. He received it from Jesus himself. He's confident in this message of the gospel, so confident that because it's directly from the Savior, and this type of confidence lends itself to not, verse 10, not seeking the approval of man. He's so confident in this gospel that if all of the world were to turn against him, but he was pleasing to God in his proclamation, that would be enough. He's chiefly interested in pleasing God. Friends, there are a lot of gospels that please the ears of men and women. But there's one Gospel from Jesus to the Apostles to us that pleases God. And if it doesn't come from Jesus through the Apostles to us, it's not the true Gospel. And so Paul goes to great, great length to try to undergird that point to us and then he shifts gears in the biography a little bit to point to us what God is doing in this gospel, and particularly the fact that the gospel saved Paul from something. Part of his biography is what he was saved from. And in short, Paul was one of the worst of all the sinners in the world who needed saving. He calls himself such 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul illustrates us right here that he's of the foremost, worst of all sinners. He wants us to consider what he's saved from. Verse 13, he says that he persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. Elsewhere, we see that he persecuted Christians even to the point of imprisonment and death with murderous threats, Acts 9, and raging fury, Acts 26. Verse 14 right here, it gives sort of an addendum to that. He says that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many who were his own, a- his own age. So you put those two things together, and you start to paint a picture of what kind of man this was. And you say this was a man who was zealous to stamp out Christianity completely. He was interested in self-advancement and self-promotion and self-righteousness. He stood in direct opposition to the gospel of Jesus. He stood in direct opposition to the work of God. He stood in direct opposition to the people of God. If there was anyone who would not be eligible for the grace of God to be saved, it's this guy. If there was anyone who on earth who was an enemy of God, it's this man. If there was anyone that God should look at and say, I'm going to discard him. It was this man. This is what he was saved from. (laughs) We're saved from our sin and from our sinful state. And that sinful state leads us to do all kinds of things. Today there are a lot of false gospels out there that drastically diminish or completely ignore the fact that we need to be saved from a something. You might immediately think to yourself, well, Nick, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, after all, we all make mistakes. We all have a little bit of a tainted past. We all, uh, you know, can look back and say, oh, I wish I could do things differently. But we can't go back and actually do that. And the way forward is not to look backwards, it's to shed the past and leave it behind us and and go forward in sort of the encouragement of the future, right? There are plenty who desire to speak of a promise of a loving God for you, for a bright and glorious future, for a wonderful eternity in heaven, for a Christian life right now. But here's the truth. Take a key Paul on this one. If you don't reckon with your sin that you are saved from, you'll never fully understand what it actually means to be saved at all. You're not saved from a neutral position against God. (laughs) You're not saved from a good place only to get to a better place. Jesus did not die on the cross so that we would simply become improved versions of ourself. The message of the gospel is that God took people who were enemies and made them his children. That he takes people who are living in darkness and he brings them into the light. That he takes people who are spiritually dead makes them alive. Be very wary of a gospel that doesn't talk about sin or turning from the sin as part of being saved. Because just like the gospel saved Paul from something, this gospel also saves us from something. I mean, Paul is the extreme example. God saved the enemy par excellence to show the power of the gospel that can be applied to every single person, every single kind of person, every single history of people, every single thing that you have said or done. The fact that God saved Paul and used Paul means just quite frankly that God can save you and use you. Some of us maybe still aren't exactly clear about our standing before God without Jesus. Maybe we don't fully realize the need to be saved because we're generally a good person, because life is generally pretty good around us, and yeah, there's some hard things here or there. But the Bible is replete with descriptions of people who haven't been redeemed, and it doesn't speak in the most Kind spiritual terms. John chapter 1 says that the true light, which was Jesus, which which gives light to everyone who was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive them and the implication was because they're in the darkness. John chapter 3, Jesus himself says whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Second Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And the list goes on and on. I could read probably five more. But the description of people without Jesus is living in darkness, (laughs) standing under condemnation, blinded as they go through their life by Satan. That is what God saves us from. Others of us might feel like we're unworthy to be saved, that if we only knew about all of the things that you have said or done or how horrible you have been at different seasons of your life and the weight of shame and guilt that you hide beneath the surface of that external veneer. If we only knew about the real you, you might say, you change the tune about this salvation. One man whose life was changed by the gospel is named Tom. And Tom Papania actually went from being in the mafia to in the ministry. His grandfather was a criminal who helped bring organized crime from Sicily to America. Papania himself was a hard man. When he was only 10 years old, during one of the many beatings that he received from his father, he vowed that he would never shed tears again at the age of 10. He became a thief, an extortionist. A murderer and eventually he became the number two man in the Gambino crime family of New York City his heart was so cold that when hardened criminals looked into his eyes all they saw was death but eventually God started to speak to Papania's heart but he refused to listen he did not want to be controlled by God Or anyone, for that matter. He wanted no one to have power over him. And so he decided that he was going to outsmart God. He had this inkling of God's presence, and so he was quite certain in his mind that God was going to punish him and even kill him for his many, many sins. And so to outsmart God, he would kill himself first. (laughs) And as he held the gun to his head one night, the phone rang. It was a man who had been inviting him to church. And just to prove that God did not have any power over him, he decided that he would go to church that night. And he did. And after the service was finished, he met the minister at the back door, and the minister looked at him and he said, I want to tell you something, but I don't want to offend you. You've heard the saying, the eyes are the window to the soul. And when I looked into your eyes when you came in this evening, all I could see was a little boy crying, wanting to be loved. By saying this, the pastor exposed Papanya's most painful secret. But he did not want anyone to know that he was a man that had a weakness. And he was indeed highly offended by the minister's words. And so he went back to the church that evening to kill the pastor. Don't get any ideas. (laughs) And as they sat and they talked together, he was unable to follow through with it. And the pastor talked to him, and he began to hear a little bit about his story. And the pastor asked him if he knew Jesus. Told him he needed to be born again. And Papanya just laughed and he said, Pastor, if these people in this church found out who I was, they'd throw both of us out of here. I'm probably the biggest sinner you'll ever see if you live a million years. These people here don't want me, I'm a sinner. And then he began to recount all of his crimes. He was trying to get the minister off his back on this notion about being born again. He wanted to convince him that he was so bad that God was on the verge of killing him. But what he was really doing was confessing his sins one by one, out loud. And before he knew it, Papanya found himself kneeling on the ground with 30 years of tears freely flowing down his face, opening the door of his heart to Jesus and to let him in. He would later say, I found Jesus. I've been searching for him all of my life and now I have him and I'm not letting him go. That is a life that's changed by God's gospel. What has God saved you from? Or for some of you, the question might be, what do you need saving from? I look around the room and I know many of your stories Just in this room alone, I think about the things that God has saved you from. I think about how he has saved so many of us from a self-centered life. How he has saved people in this room from pornography addiction, from the love of money, from the constant, incessant pursuit of comfort, Some of us are saved out of really dysfunctional patterns in our relationships. Others of us are saved from the God of self-promotion and self-centered advancement. Some in this church are saved out of substance abuse and addiction, a lifestyle of homosexuality. Others were gossips and slanders. Some of us were liars. Some of us were thieves. And some of us simply lacked an understanding of what real love for other people actually looks like. For me, I can think of the many things that God has saved me from. Most simply, he saved me from a mind fixated on material possessions, on personal pleasure, striving for self-importance in this world. And for all of us who trust Jesus, we're saved from a love for the world and for its ways, and a lack of belief. We're saved from that. We're saved from a deeply sinful state. God doesn't save you out of a bad situation only to give you a better one. He saves you out of the worst possible condition of sin to give you the perfect condition of righteousness. And he does so through faith in Jesus so God saves Paul and he offers to save you and he does this despite what you've done and he does this despite your poor standing before him and then he tells us a little bit about how and why he does it look at verse 15 with me Paul says after giving this description of what he was saved from But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. If you noticed, you noticed in the first couple of verses, a lot of the past of Paul was wrapped up in the I, I, I. I persecuted the church. I tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism. I was zealous for the traditions of my father. But now we see in verse 15 and 16 a very sharp turn. He almost exclusively talks about the work of God in saving. God set me apart before I was born. God called me by his grace. God was pleased to reveal his son to me. The entire work of salvation belongs to God. And this is why Paul engages in such a way. I mean, why would he do this to Paul? Why on earth would God save him? And the answer in verse 16 tells us simply because he was pleased to do so. God gave his love and his grace simply because it pleased him. That's it. He wasn't worthy of it. He didn't earn it. It pleased God to show grace to him. And this is how God has always worked. This is what it means for God to be sovereign. He does things to his good pleasure according to his purpose and according to his plan. In the Old Testament, God set his loving grace upon Abraham for no other reason than it pleased him to do so. He formed a people, Israel, because it pleased him. And he says as much in Deuteronomy chapter 7. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you, and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God loved his enemy, the murderer. He showed him Jesus. And Paul, as a result, went away, three years it said, to contemplate that reality, to study, to learn. And the chapter ends with people in almost utter amazement about the fact that this could even happen, that God would even do anything like this. Look with me at the end. He says, I'm unknown in person to the churches of Judea. Verse 22, they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And they glorified God because of me. You know, one of my favorite things as a pastor is probably going to sound a little bit twisted, but um, I love it when I meet people in our community that know you. And then I say to them, oh, yeah, they go to my church. And they go, (laughs) he goes to church? I knew him back in high school. I knew the things that she used to do. And they don't you know, always go that length. But the eyes tell the story. Like, oh my goodness. They teach Sunday school?
1: They're on the praise team?
0: They go to a small group? They help? I thought the church would fall down if they ever entered the doors of it. I love hearing that because it reminds me that God has saved you from something. And for people to hear and see and know, he is not the same person he used to be. God did something incredible in her life. You knew her 25 years ago, but you should see her today. And the result for the people of God is that they glorify God Because of you. God saves people by grace, and that brings him great glory. God saves people by, surely by grace, and that gives him great glory. You know, your story is so important. What God saves you from, how he saves you, what he saves you to. It brings glory to God. Not all of us are like Paul. Paul's unique, with a unique mission, but you're a unique person, every single one of us. And even though we're not the chief persecutors of Jesus or his people, we still need saving from something, and God still offers to save us, just like he did Paul. And when God saves people by his grace, it brings him great, great glory. Your story is so important for some of you The story is that you have yet to surrender your life to Jesus. And just now you're thinking about or feeling or the Holy Spirit is working in your heart that you need to be saved from something. (laughs) Your sin. For others, you know the core of the Gospel, but you underestimate the wonderful miracle of God in saving you from those sins and from that sinful disposition. I hope you know your story. I hope you think about the details, where you were and where your sin was leading you. And I hope that you're not afraid to share it. Because if you take an example from Paul, what God saves us from and what he saves us to brings great, great glory to him. And why did he save you? Out of all the people in the world, why did he save you? Because he was pleased to do so. That's it. Tim Keller states it well when he says, God does not love us because we're serviceable. He loves us simply because he loves us. This is the only kind of love that can ever give us security, of course, since it is the only kind of love that we cannot possibly lose, and that is grace. God saves people by His grace, and that brings Him great, great glory. You. Being saved gives him great, great glory. And so let's pray. And thanks God, thank God for loving us despite ourselves. Father in heaven, as we consider the nature of this true gospel, and we think about together, even for a few moments, the path that we were on, the sinful patterns of our life, the dynamics in which we engaged the guilt in which we carry, and how there was no possible way out of it, we thank you for grace, for loving us simply because it pleases you to do so. Out of all of the people in all the world and all of history, you display your grace to us, and we give you thanks and praise honor.